Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this episode of Talking OTC Commodities. My name is Richard Heath. This week, we've travelled to the offices of Simpson Spence Young in London. Simpson Spence Young are a global shipbroker with a strong research and derivatives business. And I'm very happy to be joined today by Duncan Dunn from SSY Futures, Derek Langston, Head of Research for SSY, and Philip Tripodakis from the LNG shipbroking desk. In this episode, we're going to discuss IMO 2020, the impact that this is having on the shipping market today, and also how this is affecting the linked uh, derivative markets for dry and wet freight. In addition, we're going to discuss potential new fuel sources for the shipping market and also potential new products and freight derivatives such as LNG FFAs. So, perhaps we can start with a a bit of scene setting. Um, There's been a huge amount of discussion about IMO 2020 over the last, you know, uh, five years at least, but definitely over the last few years. Um, And now we're just two months away from implementation. It would be really great to understand what you guys as a broker see happening in the physical market as a result of this new regulation. Hi, Richard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It has been um, a lot of talking about IMO 2020, and now we're certainly feeling the effects of this, in particular in the dry bulk freight market. Uh, the market has uh, had a sustained upward push from the middle of 2019, and a lot of this, in our view, can be traced to developments and preparations relating to the IMO 2020 deadline from the 1st of January next year. There are a number of ways that this has affected the market, so I'd like to talk just quickly about some of them. Firstly, there's the impact on fleet inefficiency. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're preparing as a ship owner, you're preparing to be compliant with the new global limit of 0.5% sulfur from 3.5%, there are a number of ways you can do this. You could opt for a, a compliant fuel Uh, one already produced that is uh, 0.5% sulfur or below. Um, Or you could take the step of actually installing an exhaust gas uh, cleaning system, also known as a scrubber, on board. And I could say that this uh, adoption of scrubbers does, of course, mean that vessels will be taken off hire Mm -hmm. um, for a number of weeks to have the work done. And, of course, taking vessels out of the market naturally is supportive. And we've observed this... uh, an upturn in the vessels being taken off from the second quarter of this year through through the third quarter. And adopting scrubbers would make more sense given the capital uh, expenditure 
makes more sense for the higher value vessels, where you can make your uh, payback period uh, shorter, anticipated higher higher earnings. So it would make more sense for larger vessels. So in the dry bulk market, this is predominantly Cape sizes um, of over 100,000 dead weight. Uh, Panamaxes as well, of say 65 to 99,000 dead weight, and to a lesser extent, smaller vessels of below 65,000 dead weight. So what we've seen really on uh, the Cape size market, which has had quite a pronounced upward push, is that we've seen uh, about say fairly kind of steady kind of numbers between 50 and 60 capes taken into dry dock in Chinese yards for scrubber fitting. This is, in terms of the dynamic in the Cape size market, this is of course kept tonnage not only off higher, but focused in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And for the Cape size market, a lot of the dynamism and the higher earnings comes from front hull voyages, from the Atlantic carrying cargo into the Pacific. So by keeping the vessels tied up off market or trading within the Pacific, you are thinning out the flow of ballasters into the Atlantic so that when cargo does become available on the spot market, you get an upward push, a bit of a squeeze on rates, and they start to spiral upwards. So that's been one very obvious effect. And tied to this, we're actually observing in some cases slightly uh, uh, longer uh, scrubber uh, fitting times. You can also see a few examples of vessels waiting to enter dry dock. And that, of course, is, is bad for fleet efficiency and helps tighten those supply-demand balances. So that would be one very obvious effect that we've observed. What we do think in terms of the... Uh, we At SSY Research, we spend a lot of time... Um, uh, tracking the fleet and we believe that currently we are on course to see around 20 to 25 percent of the Cape size fleet being scrubber fitted by March of next year. The Panamaxes we would estimate we were on course to see up to 10 percent and then for the smaller geared vessels less than five percent. This of course means there is a mass migration to lower sulfur fuels. Mm -hmm. And this is the second part in terms of the uh, uh, tightening in the market, in terms of fleet inefficiency, is instances of bunkering delay. And again, this is something that's been um, evident in the market, particularly at a major bunkering hub such as Singapore, which is at the forefront of the move from high sulfur fuel towards low sulfur fuel. Now, a lot of vessels and owners are making these steps now to, to transition over. So from about, Mar- from about July of this year, you could see uh, instances of up to 10 days delay being talked about anecdotally at, uh, at Singapore. And this was a product of uh, preparations being made, mm-hmm. tanks being cleaned, uh, bunker uh, vessels being uh, uh, prepared. And also as well, we can see instances of tank cleaning on, on specific uh, uh, dry bulk carriers. Thanks, Terry. I mean, that's, that's, that's really, really interesting. So... Um, just to summarise those those two points that you're saying, saying first of all, there's a, a tightening of the vessel supply due to vessels being taken out of service to go into dry dock to be retrofitted with scrubbers, but then also that the the switch over of physical bunkering infrastructure, um, as you say, you know, barge cleaning, storage on land, um, other infrastructure is also creating a delays in, in bunkering with new low sulfur fuel. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. 
And in addition to this, it's uh, it's, it's been a it's been a major impact on the market this year in terms of uh, the, one of the biggest increases we saw in the market is Cape Size and Panamax rates. They were mm-hmm. the ones that started to push up uh, uh, most immediately in the third quarter. And you know, this year we've had probably one of the main Cape Size um, flows has been in iron ore. One of the key drivers of the Cape Size market, Brazilian iron ore, moving into East Asia, most notably China, and with the tragic uh, dam disaster mm. earlier this year, and the resulting uh, reduction in iron ore uh, cargo, the, the the impact of IMO 2020 has been even more evident. This is not a year where where trade flows have been at their have been at their highest, but still we've seen a dramatic increase from July onwards, and that very much points to the IMO. 2020 story. Okay, so I mean, even even with the lack of lack of available cargoes, we're still seeing this tightening supply driving rates, as you, as you say. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is um, so this is one 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 factor that's uh, definitely impacting the freight market. Um, the second one I would of course point to, and this is if you're looking at uh, uh, any kind of voyages involving a, a freight rate uh, that involves bunker fuel costs, is of course mm-hmm. the anticipated effect on uh, the fuel costs. Now, at the moment, as I mentioned, we are on the way. We are moving. We can see vessels being marketed at the moment, carrying very low sulfur fuel oil. Already, as we speak, at the end of October, that is the case, and there'll be much more transition by the end of the year. Um, but what we uh, so what becomes key then is looking at some of the spreads opening up between the uh, high sulfur fuel oil mm-hmm. and the lower sulfur alternatives, uh, which are more costly. And this is going to be extremely important in terms of the importance, uh, the value of scrubber economics for those owners that have opted to install scrubbers. And also for charterers in terms of how much they would have to pay on a dollar per tonne basis when you're including the bunker fuel costs. This is going to be um, of key importance for them. Something I can add to that, is that we're seeing um, a bit of a drop at the moment for Supermax, Panamax earnings in the Atlantic. Okay. And it could be demand, could be demand-linked, um, but at the same time, it may be coincidental, but if you're um, a ship owner, operator, looking to use high sulfur fuel oil, then really to be, given the length of time, takes to ballast from the Pacific into the Atlantic and back again, you'd be bunkering in the Pacific, you would have to be either in the Atlantic already Mm -hmm. or well on the way to take advantage of that. So it may well be that we're seeing more um, ships in the Atlantic partly being influenced by the timing of the transition. That's interesting. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the economics of this change as well. I mean, you you mentioned earlier uh, the economics of fitting fitting a scrubber and what the payoff with those could be. So I wanted to get a feeling from you about the differential between the different fuel prices, the the low sulfur and the high sulfur, and how you're seeing that at the moment now that we're just two months away. Well, this is um, a crucial question. And really, there's no simple answer because every ship owner has a different ship spec and so on and different different costs of scrubber installation. But of course the wider the spread between the low sulfur, the 0.5% and that and the old high sulfur, um, then yeah that that's of course is, is 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 fairly key. We don't really have a real market at the moment. So that this becomes a, 
a question that I want to throw out there and, and really pose at the moment is what that's going to be. And looking at the Singapore market and comparing the 0.5% sulfur against the, the high sulfur fuel oil, in the Q3, that, that spread was $90 per tonne. And by October, it had risen to 165 to 170. So that does seem to indicate that it's uh, moving, certainly, as we approach the uh, uh, deadline. We've also had some fairly um, widespreads. The, the 0.1% sulfur that I mentioned earlier, which we have pricing history for, against high sulfur, um, a couple of uh, last week, we saw the highest spread for six years. So since September 2013. Now in September 2013, the price of crude was around was over $100 a barrel. Now, of course, at this level at the moment, we're seeing Brent, I think, around as we speak, around 60, mm-hmm. uh, WTI below that. So that does imply that there's this IMO 2020 effect is starting to be felt. But what we don't have is a complete transition yet. Okay. That's what we don't have. So I think that one of the questions there is how this is going to price. You're looking at the um, oil futures markets, as I mentioned, pricing in a fairly smooth transition. Looking at the uh, dry freight market at the moment, and it prices, yes, a discount. It's, it's, it's uh, certainly within uh, uh, the range that we've seen in, in previous years. These become key questions. Um, also, as I've talked about, the, the, um, the flow of vessels into the Atlantic as opposed to the Pacific as well. Um, that then becomes a question for the owners and operators. It becomes like a, in motor racing, like a pit stop strategy. What do you, how much do you uh, uh, load? When do you load? The mm-hmm. timing becomes important because as we are in late October, as I mentioned, you have to be either be there or on the way to have taken a, uh, a full load of, uh, of high sulfur fuel oil. So these become really important questions. Um, in terms of the uh, for for owners and operators, this is a bit of a learning experience. You have to transition across. So some of the tanks and the vessel are going to be used uh, for the low sulfur being phased in, and uh, some won't be. So they're all these. It's a massive learning experience for everyone. It's an unprecedented change. It's coming up very soon, and yeah, we've seen disruption. And the question is, to what extent do we see disruption carrying on? Thanks very much. That's really interesting. I, I love the pit stop analogy. That's, uh, I think that really helps to focus people's minds on exactly the decisions that, that ship owners and operators have to make and charterers as they, as they go through this change. Um, one of the questions that I had on the, on the pricing and the fuel availability, I mean, and that's the availability of high sulfur fuel oil in the future. So you said possibly 20 to 25% of the Cape size market with scrubbers, 10% in Panamax and, and less so for the smaller sizes. There will be some demand for high sulfur fuel oil. Uh, we talked about the delays of bringing low sulfur into the physical infrastructure. Obviously, you can't mix it in the same tanks, whether on barges, in vessels or ashore. Is there any sort of potential pinch in high sulfur fuel oil supply? It's a very good question, Richard. Um, and, it, and it remains to be seen, really. It's uh, Something else I'd, I'd, I'd draw your attention to is, is also the underlying price of crude. At the moment, crude, as we mentioned, compared to 2013, we're at relatively low levels. If we get sudden movements in the price of crude, as we did recently, then we saw the high sulfur fuel oil price really spike, get to some very uh, dramatic levels, particularly in Singapore, the 
premium of Singapore against Rotterdam really jumped to levels that we haven't seen, certainly not this decade, certainly not this century. But um, yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of uh, variables. And of course, with the, the oil markets at time, they can be a bit more febrile than they are mm-hmm. currently. And that's where I think a lot of the risk comes in. That's that's really interesting. And that, that point you make, especially about the supply in, in Singapore, I guess with the, you know, with the high low sulfur spreads where we are at the moment the economics of moving high sulfur fuel oil east to singapore probably don't work out the way they have done in the past and so maybe that market's a little bit more susceptible to price spikes yeah and um, across the region um, i think we're sort of hearing of issues and getting hold of high sulfur fuel oil right across the region there i've heard australia new zealand um yeah it's uh, certainly not by any means limited to singapore so it's uh it's a uh, yeah, it's a key change. It's a massive change, and uh, yeah, we're right in the middle of it at the moment. Interesting times. I mean, we've talked about high and high and low sulfur fuel oil. Um, I think it's worth discussing whether there are new fuels out there. Whether there's any other options. We hear a lot of discussion now for several years in the market about small scale LNG. Obviously, LNG is a clean fuel. Um, do we see any change in the bunkering infrastructure? Do we see any initiatives to try and bring LNG into more mainstream shipping markets as a as a as a fuel? Well, without without quoting any hard data at this point, uh, we have seen, and I think uh, Derek could probably corroborate this uh, from the dry bulk perspective, uh, an increased interest in uh, dual fuel um, vessels. Uh, this has been particularly pronounced uh, when it comes to tankers. Uh, obviously, uh, LNG is al- already being in the clear since they burn part of their cargo uh, as fuel. Um, and uh, this should be something that uh, gains uh, increasing attention as we go forward. Um, IMO 2020, uh, as we keep saying, is here to stay. And uh, the industry will have to react and find uh, feasible solutions going forward. Uh, we have already seen the oil majors Total and Shell being two good examples uh, that have already invested um, in LNG bunkering. And this is also to serve uh, other commodities such as um, uh, liner vessels or uh, rural vessels. Uh, But it's also going forward to serve some of the tanker orders we've seen, um, uh, Aframaxes, I believe, uh, as well as other classes that uh, will be uh, employing engines that can burn LNG as a fuel as well. Uh, of course, um, this is one more category where there are many, many question marks and uh, very uh, little, uh, very few fixed points. But uh, it's definitely an area of interest uh, that we're looking closely at. And uh, more importantly, it's something our clients are uh, asking about and uh, trying to see what they will do going forward with their own portfolios. Thanks, Philip. I think that point about LNG bunkering infrastructure and, and the different vessel types that it might serve is is really interesting you know so so what are the limitations of deploying uh lng bunkering infrastructure more globally you've said the the lead points are in northwest europe a little bit in singapore at the moment but obviously it would have to become more widespread to be a more wide widely used fuel um what are the difficulties in in achieving that I think it's it's um, the first that come to mind really when it comes to transitioning uh, to a different fuel. It's uh, uh, supply availability, it's uh, logistics storage capacity, it's uh, continued 
uh, demand and and the flow of, of off takers. Um, it's the it's the the entire logistics conundrum, um, and particularly with uh, LNG, um, storage is a big question mark because uh, essentially to keep it chilled, uh, to keep it liquid, it has to be at negative one hundred and sixty three degrees, and this poses an issue when trying to store it long termly, as you do lose some of it to boil off. Um, due to, obviously, uh, the laws of physics and currently imperfect containment systems. Well, thanks, guys. I mean, that's, it's really interesting to hear about how this transition is affecting the different markets. Um, it would be great, I mean, Duncan, it would be wonderful to understand how we see this affecting the paper markets that, of course, are you know, inextricably linked to, to all of the physical transition that we've been hearing about. Well, I think the uh, overriding point to make about the impact of all of this on the uh, derivative markets is that it's been positive, but it would be very hard to pin a tail on the donkey of exactly where the positive effect uh, can, can, can be shown. Uh, I think an interesting example would be if you look at the dry FFA market uh, back in 2018, uh, we saw uh, a, a slight anomaly in that uh, the second-year futures contracts for the dry bulk FFA market uh, were uh, higher in volume traded than the first year. So as, as, as long ago as two years back, we saw people preparing and taking FFA positions for 2020 higher than the volume of trading for the, for the, for the next year. Oh, that's interesting. So that is, that is interesting, and one can draw some conclusions for that, but the uh, dry FFA market, like the tanker market, has always been uh, very much a prompt market with the majority of the volume focused in the, uh, in the, in the front few months. So al- although an interesting anomaly, not a major uh, mover, um, I think the, uh, the, the way to look at these markets is that uh, uh, the backdrop of the dry bulk FFA market is that like uh, all, all other markets, it got uh, a pretty hard knock from the credit crunch of 2008-2009 and uh, had, had the stuffing kicked out of it. Uh, 50% of that stuffing had been over the counter, went over to cleared, and by around 2013, it really had bottomed out and we were seeing around 200,000 lots trading a quarter at this sort of low points in the market. Okay. And uh, since then, there's been a build-up, uh, taking the market noise out, there's been a long, slow build-up to around 300,000 lots a quarter that ran about 100,000 lots a month, 25,000 a week. And in the last uh, year, we've seen two quarters when we've had very nearly 400,000 lots trading. So... We've doubled from low to high, and we've seen strong trend growth in the dry market over the last five or six years. And and, and certainly, I think that the contributing uh, volatilities from uncertainty over 2020 will have contributed to that. And certainly, the dry FFA market participants uh, really engaged very strongly with their uh, colleagues in the in the in the physical market in in the whole debate. So it's clear that physical market participants were using the uh, derivatives market 
the way we'd like to see them doing it. Um, on the other hand, when we look at the tanker market in the last uh, year or two, we've seen that double. And uh, the FFA markets have ever been markets of capacity mm-hmm. where the participants see volatility, then they'll reach for the FFA market and the volume will, will spike. And so we've seen uh, uh, quarterly uh, volume for uh, the tanker FFA market in the last year go from a, a pretty uh, depressing 60,000 lots up to around 120. So we doubled and getting to around 10,000 lots a week. So what does that tell us about what we might see in the LNG FFA market? Uh, well, uh, you know, we've, we, we, we've, we've uh, heard a, a, a lot of comments so far uh, qualified with the it's, it's impossible to tell for certain, um, but clearly leading the way, we have the Baltic Exchange with their three new uh, LNG time charter contracts, and uh, there have been signals from the market uh, as uh, the occasional over-the-counter trades have been broke, settling against those, uh, that the market is enthusiastic for the uh, the, the derivative uh, risk management tool to, uh, to to get launched on a clear basis in LNG. Uh, and then we can uh, uh, look at the underlying growth, particularly in the, the JKM market, which mm-hmm. everyone talks about on these occasions, uh, Japan-Korea um, LNG pricing. And uh, we've seen that market, that derivative market, grow by around 10 times in the last year or so. And uh, there is now a healthy volume of trade going on in JKM derivatives. And, and we think that uh, that uh, could certainly support uh, an initial 10 or 20,000 lot a week market for LNG. So really the, the LNG market could be bursting onto the scene uh, in, in a similar size to the uh, uh, current tanker FFA market. And, uh, and then there is scope for continued growth. Thanks. That's, that's really interesting. So um, to make sure I understand correctly, you're saying, you know, on the, on the dry side, we've seen continued growth for a number of years now. And then I think you said people reaching for derivatives when there's uncertainty, which, which is a really, I think, key point that you said the physical players are using these tools for risk management in these volatile times uh, against the backdrop of the, of the market growing anyway. So I think that's, that's interesting. And then seeing the same thing in the tanker market, um, you're saying really then that the market is ripe for shipping derivatives as a whole and with the growth in the in the JKM, LNG FFAs could very well be next. Exactly. And uh, really the, the, the reason for this is very straightforward. Uh, when you look at the underlying physical market, it's very different to the derivative market. The underlying market has very large transactions which happen relatively infrequently. Mm -hmm. And the obvious risk mitigation tool, an opportunity uh, when you're exposed to that sort of pricing, is to go into relatively smaller trades more frequently. In other words, you use derivatives to adjust your exposure to the very risky, very large underlying physical market. And uh, it's already the case that there is a a groundswell of interest in this 
not just uh, amongst the opportunist brokers and exchanges and derivatives businesses, uh, but also in, in, in the underlying owners and operators of the, the, the infrastructure of LNG transportation. Okay, so you see real demand from the, the physical the physical market, as you say, not necessarily just the financial side of the business, but the actual the people that are going to drive the volume with managing their risk. Yes, and uh, this is certainly a, a story which has been borne out by our experience in the uh, tanker, and particularly in the dry market. These are very much trade-based markets. They've built up with participants with exposure to the underlying commodity, to the underlying physical freight market. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly along the way, they've been greatly assisted by the uh, financial participants. And uh, over the years in dry, we've seen uh, a fall off in bank activity, but at the same time, we've seen a, a lifting interest from the natural investors into the, the freight market, uh, the, the, the funds, private equity and so forth. And uh, and, and, and so the same uh, opportunity uh, for engagement exists in LNG. We're relatively com- confident that this will be a, a successful derivative launch. And it's uh, certainly something that SSY Futures will be interested in getting behind. Um, in some respects over the years, we've turned from a, a one-trick pony who've always focused very much on the uh, the uh, FFA market, uh, we've branched out into the uh, uh, bulk commodity markets, and we've developed expertise in listing new products and mm-hmm. growing new markets. And so, really, that is now uh, uh, the the opportunity for us is to commit uh, our, our expertise and resources to uh, the growth of the LNG freight market. Fantastic! Clearly, you're a a, a big supporter. Um, I mean, it's interesting thing when we talk about this market as well. We know that the the underlying shipping market in LNG is relatively small if we compare it to to dry bulk and to tankers. Um, the spot market trades relatively infrequently, with you know a lot of LNG business still being based on on longer term contracts. So, does the application of that product go beyond the pure shipping market to the to the LNG traders as well? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I have to be very careful on these occasions not to uh, talk uh, over my colleagues in the research market because uh, here I am a generalist and, uh, and, 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 and they're sitting around the table with, with genuine expertise in, in, in this area. But we, we anticipate that uh, the success, part of the success, the core success of the LNG derivatives market has been the opportunity to trade price differentials around hubs mm-hmm. and uh, we think that uh, the freight market in LNG and freight derivatives in LNG will naturally fit into that and afford great opportunities for participants in those markets. Okay so we're, we're talking about a TTF Henry Hub JKM plus LNG freight as forming a real tradable sort of ecosystem. Exactly, a virtuous circle. So the LNG FFA market is, is really right at its inception right now. And we're seeing a number of businesses come to market trying to put a, a benchmark out there. Um, 
do you think that's a, a good thing for the industry to have competing businesses? And, and what do you think it says about uh, this market in general? Well, I think you pose an excellent question um, and one we have been asked and we have asked ourselves. Fundamentally, uh, the LNG FFA is uh, crucially important into um, increasing the liquidity of spot trading, both on the cargo side and the freight side. Uh, traders, portfolio players, uh, everybody needs it. Uh, it's, it's unfathomable that you are not in a position currently to hedge your freight exposure, uh, especially when the the um, the freight element uh, can be anywhere between two to twenty percent of delivered cargo value. When rates are super high, you you could be losing millions on freight. Uh, having said that, having various providers at the moment um, competing against each other uh, for who will come out on top as the uh, industry benchmark um, upon which the FFA contracts will be will be uh, based. Uh, is very healthy for the industry, uh, we find. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately what you want is a robust um, a robust index, a commonly accepted index, uh, that will be used by more and more people and eventually uh, invite uh, speculators and banks and increase the total liquid liquidity. The more counterparties you have, uh, the better you can hedge your freight position uh, and exposure. Um, so I think the market will ultimately decide uh, which... Uh, which benchmark will be the one used? Mm -hmm. um, the ones we um, we collaborate and interact with, uh, we we believe in their approach, uh, but ultimately it's our clients um, that will decide which one will be uh, used uh, going forward. And uh, it, it's not a, a race, I guess, in which more than one horse wins. Um, I feel that's my personal opinion on the matter. So that's interesting that you said that the the competition sort of helps helps all of those providers actually to deliver a better a better benchmark and as you say at the end of the day it's the people with the risk who are trading these products that need to have certainty and faith in that benchmark to to make the make the market work exactly it has to there has to be confidence that that is the the benchmark that best represents where the market is and where the market uh, will be as it's viewed by the various players. And uh, fundamentally, all you need is more than one person uh, to do business with. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't do business by yourself. You need a counterparty. And uh, when you have um, a robust benchmark, you have more counterparties that are willing to use that and, uh, and trade on it. Um, Thanks. Philip, the other thing that you said, which I, I thought was really interesting, was this hint at, uh, the symbiotic relationship or the virtual circle um, of being able to manage the freight exposure and how that can drive an increase in spot LNG trading as well, as if the two are, are sort of linked. And, and you, you made an analogy to the oil market and said if we look at um, the volume of derivatives to physical in the oil market, we see that derivatives vastly exceed the, the physical market LNG is still a very long way from that point as a, a relatively nascent commodity still. But it's interesting to think that the, the shipping side can help the spot, the spot commodity trading as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that's what we're seeing is that as we transition into a market where you can eventually uh, fully or at least partially hedge your freight exposure, uh, you will have more people getting into the, the trading of the physical cargoes as well which was, until previously, the privilege 
of companies that had their own freight mm-hmm. uh, based on the fact that uh, traditionally uh, LNG contracts were point A to point B uh, with destination clauses. You couldn't divert a cargo, you couldn't sell it elsewhere, you couldn't optimize your trading portfolio. Um, uh, going forward, uh, it's, it's one more, um, it's one more uh, weapon that traders and portfolio players can utilize to, to uh, make their, their trading more efficient is hedging their freight. Philip, obviously volatility in LNG freight rates is, is nothing new, but has the recent volatility with the background of people talking about LNG FFAs, has that helped to move the LNG FFA conversation forwards? Absolutely. I think it's been uh, a driving force, especially since the, the winter of uh, 2017 to 2018, uh, and then uh, Q4 2018, and then this year as well. Uh, we've seen such volatility um, where market players uh, essentially have taken pause and said we can no longer be exposed to such a, such a freight volatility. We have to do something about it as an industry. And um, we've actually had uh, several clients um, who, who are really actively asking and pushing and following up on it. And uh, as, uh, as, as brokers, uh, we are working together with... Um, as, uh, with uh, a few of the providers that are currently in the race to be the benchmark. And uh, I think this, as you said, is um, on the back of uh, the volatility we've seen. And volatility isn't going anywhere in the future. Uh, what can happen is uh, we can have a more um, robust tool to, to hedge its volatility. And I think it will serve uh, each and every player in the market and hopefully attract more players. Thanks very much. Probably the the one element of constant in the shipping market, continued volatility, you'd say, right? We've been talking about different fuels. We've been talking about the differential in price between um, low sulfur, ultra low sulfur, high sulfur fuels. We talked a little bit about how LNG could be an alternative fuel and the change in the bunker infrastructure. It'd be great to understand a little bit about the pricing of LNG as a potential bunker fuel. That's actually a, a question we've been asking ourselves because uh, it is uh, quite um, uh, opaque at the moment. Uh, what, what we can say is that uh, LNG infrastructure is uh, very costly. Uh, even even the, the smallest of bunkering vessels uh, could cost uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars to build. Um, and um, LNG capacity, uh, storage capacity and uh, regasification uh, everything along the LNG supply chain is uh, is very capital intensive, and when you have bunkering where you have smaller parcels, you lose the advantage of economies of scale, which is something that fundamentally has benefited LNG carriers. Uh, is the fact that when you liquefy the gas, it becomes six hundred times smaller, and you can carry a vast amount overseas. Uh, the floating pi- pipeline uh, we refer to uh, on these two hundred million dollar assets, however. When you're speaking about bunkering, you have to have that critical volume of demand that will uh, slowly enable these economies of scale in terms of supply um, and will make the entire supply chain work. And how long that takes, uh, I guess it depends on on, um, how quickly and aggressively the the first movers uh, deal with this, such as some of the portfolio players I mentioned earlier, uh, who are already making a transition and have LNG bunkering vessels on order. Uh, or on the water, actually, in the case of Shell and Total. Um, uh, it should be interesting. It's definitely uh, necessary to have uh, another alternative. 
and LNG and natural gas are in abundance and um, they're clean burning. So I think the, the, the value proposition is definitely there. Uh, we just have to make it work. It's, it's interesting what you say about you know, being a first mover in LNG bunkering with a capital intensity of, of setting up that, that supply chain. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how some of the other vessel types may be easier to, to start LNG bunkering. Do you think they could sort of help bunker suppliers? If you have a, a distribution network which you know is going to provide a certain amount of volume, does that enable you to take the next step and then provide a more distributed network which tramp shippers could take advantage of? I think definitely. I think the, the, that type of approach is uh, along the right lines. And th- this is by no by no means my uh, my um, uh, segment or facet of expertise. But I think it, it goes without saying that um, the the moment you can eliminate having a vast amount of variables and you at least have some fixed points where you know you're going to have LNG storage capacity and you know you're going to have uh, one, two, five, ten LNG bunkering vessels. And you start building out this 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 network. Um, the, the next person that comes in, the, the entry barriers are that much uh, lower. Uh, so eventually, when you increase this uh, this um, the number of players that come in, and you decrease the variables, and you have more fixed uh, points to make financial decisions upon, I think we should see also uh, an acceleration of the transition. Uh, so we we all in the industry, I I feel, uh, remain hopeful that LNG is a bunker. Um, will be the future. Well, guys, thank you all very much. It was certainly interesting from my side. Thank you. Thank you. you. It's been our pleasure. I hope everyone listening found that as interesting as I did in the room here. Um, As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. My email address is richard.heath at eex.com and Stay tuned for our next episode next month. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.